Hi, everyone. You're watching NBC10's newest digital series. It is a Russia-Ukraine crisis Q&A where we will be talking with local experts every Wednesday at 1030 about the latest developments around the conflict. You can submit your questions uh, throughout the week. Uh, just send an email to ukrainequestions at nbcuni.com. Again, ukrainequestions at nbcuni.com, and we can have those answered for you. And just to start by introducing some of our panelists, uh, I'd love for you guys to just take a second to introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about the work that you do. Maya, will you start with us? Sure, thank you very much for inviting me. My name is Maya Cross and I am a professor of political science and international affairs at Northeastern University. My expertise is mainly in the area of European diplomacy, security and defense, particularly in the context of the European Union. Um, I also work on transatlantic relations. And last year I published a book um, on European Russian power relations in turbulent times. Excellent. Oleg, would you, would you go next? Sure. Uh, my name is Oleg Kutsuba. I'm the manager of publications at the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University. Um, um, full disclosure, I am from Ukraine. I was born and raised there, and uh, I got my PhD here at Harvard, uh, uh, focusing on Slavic studies, uh, so emphasis on Ukrainian and Russian studies, uh, and in particular culture and literature, studying how uh, culture reacts to oppressive regimes and how it uh, interacts or doesn't interact with them. Awesome, and Pablo? Hi, hello, thank you for inviting me. Uh, my name is Pablo Calderon, and I, I am an assistant professor in politics and international relations at Northeast University as well, but in the London campus. So I'm, I'm based in London, which is looking very rainy today for a change. And my, my, my research and my expertise are also in the field of security and particular authoritarian learning and how authoritarian regimes learn from each other uh, and also uh, free trade agreements and how free trade agreements can help open up to democratic transitions and democratic politics. Great. Well, I think we're in good hands. Um, so I just want to start off just for our viewers who, you know, there have been so many headlines coming out, so many news stories about the developments um, and a lot of different angles to discuss. So can we just um, start by getting a brief overview of how we got to where we are right now. Olet, do you want to start off with that? Sure. Um, so I, it, it all really started in 1991. If we want to go as far back when the Soviet Union collapsed following a referendum in Ukraine about Ukraine's independence. Uh, and so once Ukrainian citizens overwhelmingly voted to become independent of the Soviet Union, um, the, basically that project collapsed and then there was an agreement signed about a dissolution. And in the process of all that, uh, Ukraine inherited a large nuclear uh, weapons arsenal. At the time, that was the third largest nuclear weapons arsenal. It was biggest uh, than, bigger than China and France and the UK co to combined, for example. And so Ukraine gave up that a nuclear potential um, following the pressure from the United States and Russia, uh, in return for which they received security uh, assurances uh, within the so-called uh, Budapest Memorandum of 1994. And so Russia was one of the signatories of that memorandum, as well as the United States and the United Kingdom, later France, China, and, and other countries signed it as well. Um, so in, within the kind of that separation process uh, from the Soviet Union, Russia recognized the, uh, the borders of Ukraine at the time, which included Crimea, included all of Eastern Europe, 
uh, basically following the borders that uh, you know that were at the time uh, of the Soviet Union's dissolution in 1991 for the Ukrainian Soviet uh, so, uh, uh, Ukrainian Socialist Republic. So, of course, um, the kind of the paths of both countries, in my view, diverged. <laughs> Uh, rapidly after 2000, um, when uh, Vladimir Yeltsin handpicked, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Yeltsin handpicked Vladimir Putin to become his successor, um, and he was then elected and kind of took over the country. Uh, Putin has always tried to re-establish Russia's influence um, in the kind of in the near abroad, what is called in Russia, so kind of countries of the former Soviet Union, as well as countries that were not formally in the Soviet Union, such as Poland, uh, or, or let's say, uh, uh, Czech, uh, the Czech Republic or the Slovak Republic, but that were deeply connected with it. And so in 2004, when there was the, this uh, orange revolution in Ukraine, uh, that was really a popular uprising against the um, uh, voting irregularities and the attempts to rig elections at the time in Ukraine, uh, Putin took it personally uh, because uh, he supported the, uh, the the candidate from the the pro-Russian candidate was the kind of who was in the opposition at the times. Well, not entirely because he was the prime minister. But uh, later, then there was um, another revolution later on in 2013, 2014, when um, that uh, former uh, guy, the guy who was running for the president at the time, the pro-Russian. President uh, Viktor Yanukovych refused to sign an association agreement, which was uh, basically a trade agreement with the European Union. And so people uh, self-organized and went onto streets and started protesting. And that, that grew then into the revolution of dignity of 2013-2014. From Putin's perspective, he believed that it was all uh, Western-sponsored, that it was all manipulated, that there was no genuine movement of the people. But of course, those of us who specialize in the region, who specialize in the country, who talk to those people, who have friends and colleagues there, understand that it was a, a true grassroots movement. In fact, a unique example, I think, in recent history of uh, a republic organized from the ground up by the people and you know who ran it all without any kind of you know, uh, distinct leadership from a political party. Following that, of course, the uh, when the pro-Russian president was ousted from the country, I think that Putin reacted impulsively and used the moment to uh, annex the Crimea. The Ukrainian army was demoralized at the time. Uh, there was a, a power vacuum in Ukraine. The kind of there was no election yet. Uh, the parliament was kind of appointed an interim president at the time and so on. So there was a lot of uncertainty. And so using that moment, Putin then annexed uh, Crimea and then stoked the separatist uh, movement uh, in the in the east of Ukraine, which is, uh, you know, uh, Russia sponsored, Russia financed, uh, Russia, you know, uh, weaponized it, uh, and so on. And so since then, you know, this is kind of the latest escalation in that, in that moment. Uh, most historians see this as kind of this long, dissolution of the Russian Empire that began in 1917. Whether that is the case or not, I guess the time is going to show, but uh, definitely this is just the latest escalation in that long, long conflict. Great. Uh, Maya, Pablo, did you have anything to add to that summary? Sure. I I would, um, I mean, of course, that's a very comprehensive summary of, of how we got here. And I would just add, you know, there was, I think, a crucial turning point um, around 2008 for Putin, 
Um, so there was actually a period of time under Putin's leadership in which Russia was moving closer to the West. Um, there was talk of, you know, visa free travel between Russia and the EU, maybe even EU membership, close cooperation between NATO and Russia, um, joint military exercises with NATO and Russia. Uh, so you see this kind of dramatic turning point in 2008. And as was already discussed, this um, insecurity Putin had in terms of, you know, whether he could maintain his power and, and sort of stem the tide of democratization. Um, and so at that point, when he goes into Georgia um, and and starts showing true military aggression, he really turned away from the West. And this was a point at which there was quite a lot of uh, concern, um, particularly in NATO and the European Union. Um, so for me, I would actually really emphasize, in addition to the history we just heard, you know, the draw of EU membership for Ukraine when there was um, the protests. Um, in 2014, the Ukrainian people were waving EU flags and EU diplomats quickly reacted. They were there on the scene. It was a bit of a quieter diplomacy, but the idea was to really support Ukraine and bring it towards eventual EU candidacy, which we see being discussed today. So they did sign an association agreement, which is kind of a first step in that direction. Um, so I think really what we see here is... Um, this turn, this turning point in 2008, really indicating Putin's fear of democracy and and the kind of allure, the soft power of the European Union, which was very, very clearly on display in Ukraine. Great. Pablo, did you have anything you want to add? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Oleg's uh, summary is very, very comprehensive, and I would agree with everything that's been said. And I, and I would also say as well that I think in, in the more short term as well, there's certain cleavages that we have to understand in terms of uh, Vladimir Putin's in particular and Russia perceived weakness perhaps within the West, divisions within the European Union, divisions within the West that perhaps made, made his mind up for him really and made it a, that little bit easier to challenge the West in many, many fronts, in many different ways. And, you know, the West has been relatively slow to react. And I think we're seeing the... Uh, some of the results of that. And, you know, it, it's very good to see now how really the European Union in particular, together with the United Kingdom, they put aside the differences for a moment uh, to come together to, to, to fight Russian aggression. But I do think there is an issue there about how perceived weakness, whether real or imagined by Putin, some of it is real, I suspect, uh, has really encouraged and has really emboldened Vladimir Putin to do what he's doing now. Uh, and, yeah, I think that's very, very sad to see. Great. And so let's just bring to sort of the current day situation. Um, there was, there's been a lot of, um, which Pablo, you just mentioned, there's been a lot of um, pushback from the European Union, from the United States, um, as Russia has been invading Ukraine. Russia has been hit with uh, various penalties. President Biden just announced in the State of the Union address last night that he would ban Russian aircraft from U.S. airspace. And the EU and Canada had had a similar ban in place, so they were joining that. And the EU obviously just adopted the largest package of penalties ever imposed on a single country. And then also there's things like tech companies like Apple and Google disabling some of their features and like payments and, and traffic updates. Uh, so I just wanted to get your perspectives on whether these sort of penalties are enough to stop Russia. Pablo, what do you think? 
Um, I don't think they're necessarily enough to stop Russia right now. It's not enough to stop Russia in its tracks. I think Russia, to a certain extent, has been expecting these sort of sanctions, right? Maybe not as comprehensive as, as they've happened, right? But the problem with the sanction regime, in my view, is that it's quite slow to, to take place. And, and you have to sort of warn uh, countries beforehand, right? So the West, the European Union in particular, the UK as well, has been warning for a long, long time that these sanctions are coming, the sanctions are being prepared for. So um, it, it was relatively well known that these sanctions were, were coming. I think there is a set, to a certain extent uh, Vladimir Putin would have planned for these sanctions, right? I think the, 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 the problem here, the principle here is how long the war goes on and how long can actually Vladimir Putin and actually everyday people in Russia, right? The Russian population, the population in Russia can um, ride on the effects of these of this very strong sanctions, right? And what happens when people in Russia, particularly people with means in Russia, realize they cannot travel, they cannot take their money, they cannot take their kids to boarding school in, in Switzerland or the UK, right? What happens where the oligarchs get their football teams confiscated or, or, or that sort of thing is... Is particularly important so it's all a matter of it's not something that will work right now but it's something that needs time and it will work over time but obviously i suppose the frustration is that doesn't really help the situation of the ukrainian people right now in, the, in this moment which is when they need the help great Mayala, go ahead yeah i mean i i think that the sanctions are are designed as sort of long, medium to long-term measures, but but they are having an immediate effect in a few ways that I think are really crucial. One is the this kind of new instrument of, of freezing the Ru Russian central bank assets, which um, was essentially targeting the very strategy Putin had to survive the sanctions. So I think this is very effective. Um, and the other aspect is because it really affects the regular Russian people almost immediately, we're seeing, you know, the value of the ruble tumbling, the, the Russian economy contracting very sharply, that it does allow the Russian people, despite all the disinformation they're consuming, to realize just how serious this move is. And it stokes um, popular unrest against the Putin regime. And um, just as Pablo mentioned, we're starting to see oligarchs complaining about what Putin is doing. So there is the chance that the sanctions could have an immediate effect in destabilizing Moscow and P Putin's governance. Um, and then in the battlefield as well, I, this is not so much directly related to the sanctions, but but I think it has a bearing just this sort of like poor planning of the invasion, how it's dragging on in an unexpected way, the Russian troops losing morale. Um, this all kind of converges alongside the sanctions. But the key thing um, also psychologically with these sanctions is they really demonstrate that the world is against Putin right now, the the West, the EU, but the world mostly in general is speaking out through these sanctions to isolate Russia. And that could have an effect on how Putin calculates in the coming days um, with with the military campaign. Unfortunately, it could, you know, force him to feel that he's so isolated that he will ramp up um, the missile attacks. And so um, there, there's a kind of mixed way in which we might see this play out as a result of the sanctions. Yeah, I think also I agree with you know with pretty much everything that's been said. It, uh, sanctions are not going to stop Russian tanks, but um, we do need to ramp up sanctions even further. Uh, from Ukrainian perspective, you know, like speaking just from my personal background, my aunt 
and my cousin with small kids have spent a week now in a damp basement in in the south of Ukraine in Mykolaiv waiting the you know the bombings awaiting the troops to roll in from from Russia you know people need kind of to see more decisive stance more decisive action from the west because that really matters that kind of support and so the real achilles heel for russia is the energy sector that is something that has not been implemented yet and that uh, many leaders uh, have called for unfortunately the west continues buying russian oil and gas including the united states which buys about half a million barrel of russian oil a year that's the money that putin is using to kill ukrainian people today that's the money that he uses for ammunition for resupply of his troops in ukraine to squeeze the areas that are most vulnerable you know kind of women and children that are you know just trying to hide from all of this in the basements we need to understand the moral imperative of you know saying no basically refusing to support that regime with our money because we are paying for this and that's something that all of us can do and i think that we all also can put pressure on our representatives on on our governments both here in the united states but also in western europe to affect that kind of change and what's your sense ola as to why that hasn't been done already the 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 reasons are obvious uh the uh, in particular uh, western europe has done very little in the last 20 years to become independent of russian uh, energy supplies uh, russian energy has been one of the cheapest sources on the market uh if if we look at the last 10 years including the period when russia annexed crimea and so on the the reliance on russian oil and gas has in have in fact increased and so um it creates a problem right now if if uh, sanctions were introduced against the energy sector of Russia of course that would have an immediate effect we're in the middle of the winter still right and so um you know gas prices would soar uh, uh heating oil everything of course would would rapidly increase and that's the calculation that Putin has made in a very cynical way uh i you know he believed that the world is not going to care about ukraine the world would not be willing to satisfy its own you know comfort and and warmth to protect this uh, you know nation in eastern europe that it knows so little about you know so kind of putin was really counting on it and i think like like maya said he's he has seen that already in 2008 when the world didn't care about georgia pretty much and so um i think he was taken by surprise by how severe the sanctions in fact were um and uh, he is according to various reports he is uh, just absolutely furious and of course he is ramping up the attacks on the civilian infrastructure on innocent civilians that are trapped right now using them as human shields uh, in a war that he is waging against against a sovereign country and against and against their people okay and and maya you had mentioned that russia was cut off from i believe it's swift that that global banking system how long can russia operate functionally without access to that i believe at this point some select banks are cut off from swift so i do think this is another area in which the sanctions could be stronger which would be cutting off the country as a whole from swift um it's a difficult move to make because it it does also affect regular russian citizens which typically you try to engage in smart sanctions that affect the leadership as opposed to regular people but um it would be 
a very uh, severe kind of move to to fully remove Russia from SWIFT because they would not be able to do regular transactions and they would not be able to get the money very easily from selling oil and gas to get the, those profits. Um, so I think that would be another another step to take that that could really work. And I agree that, you know, now's the time to basically do as many sanctions as possible in all different areas. It was significant, I think, that very early on, Germany stopped Nord Stream 2. That was actually, you know, prior to the, these events, um, something quite difficult to contemplate. And um, yet Germany did this very early on, and that's sort of part of the energy thing. But as we saw with um, President Biden's State of the Union last night, he is concerned about his domestic support if oil and gas prices are to go up any further. Um, so it's an important consideration when you do sanctions, the idea is to hurt your your target more than yourself. And oil and gas is something where you hurt yourself at the same time. So um, of course, Russia would be more damaged because it's difficult for it to sell anywhere else. So it's it's a kind of self, more of a self-sacrificing move to go into that area, but clearly it's necessary. Okay, I was just going to ask. So, so you do think the energy um, sanctions that Ola had mentioned are, are necessary at this point? I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think things are very much escalating. Civilians are being targeted. We're seeing uh, violations of international humanitarian law. It is it's very, very concerning. There is the wherewithal and the need, especially with the UN report earlier this week, to not only become independent from Russian energy sources, but to become independent from these kinds of climate change changing um, causes. Uh, and so it's it's absolutely something that countries need to rush towards anyway. Um, yeah. Pablo, what, what do you think? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think that sanctions definitely need to go further, need, need to go and target the energy sector in particular. Uh, we have a cost of living crisis, of course, in Europe, energy prices are going up, gas prices are going up. But I think it is the sort of thing that voters will understand, right? Particularly if, if it's a short-term short shock. Uh, and I've been particularly taken aback and surprised to an extent by um, the sort of um, the overwhelming support and the overwhelming condemnation of Russia, not just internationally, but also within companies themselves unilaterally taking, breaking away from, from Russian links, right? So when you are too toxic for big old companies, you know you really have a, a problem, right? So you have Shell, you have BP, all these big fossil fuel companies breaking links with, with Russian companies, right? Uh, you have organizations like, you know, FIFA and, and UEFA kicking out and, and banning Russia effectively from participating in sport, which, as we know, has been a, a, a very important tool of Vladimir Putin to clean its image, right? So it, it really does send a very strong message, not just to Vladimir Putin, but to the Russian population at large, that really Russia is becoming increasingly isolated and increasingly alone, uh, and I think that's very, very, very important. Um, but yes, I agree that in the in the short term, more needs to be done, right? I think there are certain political calculations at a domestic level that, of course, leaders have to take under consideration. But at the end of the day, this is the sort of thing that if you don't act now, uh, it can get really, really worse really, really quickly. And it will be much harder to stop because once Vladimir Putin commits to take Ukraine by any means necessary, it's very hard to see how you de-escalate from that position. Uh, so this is something that is really very much time sensitive and you need to act uh, sooner rather than later.
Yeah, and I, I just would like to point out in, in connection to all of this, that we have examples of uh, cases when uh, Putin in particular, you know, has, has had decided to take something by all means necessary. And so those examples are in Chechnya and in Syria. And so we saw what happened in Chechnya when the capital of the, of the Chechen Republic, uh, Grozny, was basically reduced to rubble. There were just single walls standing there, you know, and then nothing else. It was a, a tremendous humanitarian catastrophe there. So many thousands of people died. And then we also saw in Syria when, when Russia interfered, what objects were they actually targeting? And we saw they were targeting hospitals and schools and so on. So this is the kind of crimes that we're talking about. Uh, if we don't do, if we don't step up our action right now, no one is asking United States or other countries to stand in troops. Ukrainians are willing and able to fight as everyone has seen by now. But we need to stop, step up what we can do from here in order to, to help them because they are really fighting for, for the values that we live on, the fact that we can go and vote, that the fact that we can have a government that is, you know, determined by us <laughs> and then and not by one person sitting in a palace, you know, it's all our, our values. So if, if Putin is done with Ukraine, I'm sure he's going to turn to the next country, whoever that is. Is it the United States, Poland, or, you know, the Czech Republic? Great. Anything else on this subject that anyone wanted to add before I move on to my next question? Okay, so I just quickly, because we're running out of time, wanted to ask you all about um, the sort of continued invasion, right? So Ukraine continues to get hit. Last night, the second largest city uh, in the country was hit with shelling and missiles overnight, and a huge convoy of Russian tanks and, and <coughs> vehicles continue to sort of inch closer to Kiev. And I just wanted to ask you all what what are the implications of if Russia were to, to take Kiev? Um, Ole, would you start with that? First, I don't think that Putin is going to be able to take Kiev. Um, if he does, he will not be able to hold it. So I, I would like to kind of preface my, my response with that. Uh, you know, the kind of the spirit of people, kind of the people that I talk to and kind of just in general is extremely high. People are you know, there to stay. Most people are not leaving despite the wave that we saw. So some people, of course, evacuated the elderly, their, you know, small kids, uh, you know, and so on. But most people are staying and defending the city. So, however, if it did happen, I think it would be a significant blow to Ukraine and to the Western world um, in terms of uh, credibility and in terms of ability to defend the, the same values that we just talked about. Um, but at the same time, it would not annihilate Ukrainian opposition to, to Russia. Uh, it would simply uh, decentralize it. So Russia would have to deal with, even if they install a puppet president uh, or puppet government in Ukraine, people are not going to recognize it, not going to listen to it, going to challenge them at every point. Uh, there will be uh, mass casualties because of that. Uh, but basically, there will be a guerrilla war for years and years, devastating the country, you know, you know, devastating human resources, but also, uh, you know, uh, undermining Russia, I think, as a project in its current makeup. Maya, Pablo, do either of you have anything to add to that? Uh, yeah, I think it's worth noting just on this note of 
you know, how strong the, the resistance from regular Ukrainians is, that the, the size of the Ukrainian military has grown by about a third by the very fact that there are so many volunteers and reservists stepping forward to help with this. So about 100,000 people have joined the Ukrainian army to protect their cities and um, their towns. And so I am perhaps a little... Um, pessimistic on this on this point of whether Putin's army can take Kyiv. I feel like it can um, just from the sheer amount of missiles and his determination to appear to have won. But absolutely holding it would be such a difficult prospect. Um, and so you have to wonder then, does he keep fighting, um, especially without the kind of resources to maintain this this war? Or does he maybe back off a bit and try to carve more of Ukraine out and away uh, to Russia? Even that prospect is difficult. There are reports that you know Russian-speaking Ukrainians are against Russia at this point, and so it's um, it's almost like Putin is pretty much in a situation where it's going to be hard to label something as a win at this point. But he can surely be extremely destructive. Um, in the path towards trying to claim some victory. Yeah. If I can yeah. just jump in just for one second, uh, just just to kind of uh, make, make a few things precise. Number one, uh, it, were, it, uh, it, it were the Russian-speaking Ukrainians who have been fighting in the East primarily against R Russian mercenaries and the Russia-sponsored separatists. So we cannot uh, kind of equivocate simply because people speak Russian because of centuries and centuries of Russification policies, oppression, you know, intimidation, and so on, doesn't mean that they are somehow pro-Russian or kind of Russian-oriented. So that's the, the, the very good point there. And number two, of course, is that um, uh, Ukrainians have been preparing quietly for this kind of attacks, and we have seen that they have plans in place. I think that there are plans for that uh, convoy as well that is moving on to Kyiv, and so I would not be, um, you know, I would not be. Uh, uh, giving up on them just yet, but like like Maya said, uh, of course, if Putin decided to just uh, you know turn that city to rubble, of course he absolutely can. Yeah, I think just just to, very briefly, I think there is a clear difference between invasion and occupation, right? So we've seen in recent very recent history, invasion is the easy part, right? Occupying a country is much much harder, takes huge amount of resources, huge amount of manpower, boots on the ground. And you know, with all due respect, there's a very big difference in terms of size, of population, of geopolitical importance between, say, Belarus or, or Georgia, for instance, and, and Ukraine. Uh, holding on to Ukraine and, and occupying Ukraine for a prolonged period of time against the will of the Ukrainian people, to my mind, is almost impossible. I don't see how, in which possible way, can the Russian military actually achieve that. Uh, I mean... Uh, the U.S. And, and the whole West couldn't do it in Afghanistan for more than 20 years, right? It, it's very, very difficult to actually maintain control if there's a very well-organized, which it seems to be the case, uh, militia, military power that are willing to make your life difficult. The social cost is very high, the economic cost, the political cost. Mm -hmm. And these are, these are calculations that Putin still has to deal with. Even if he's a dictator, he still has to respond to a certain constituency, whatever, however limited a constituency may be. And it, it, occupation is incredibly costly, incredibly hard. And I agree with Maya to the extent that, uh, in the sense that it is very hard to see how Putin wins now, which makes me afraid to think that he's just going to go for an all-out victory 
and he might go for quick escalation uh, just to sell it at home as a, as a massive military success. And that would be very, very, very dangerous and terrible. And also we need to kind of, we need to remember that carving out parts of the country is not really what Putin is after, because in that case, he could have been satisfied with Crimea, he could have been satisfied with the eastern part of Ukraine. No, it's the idea of Ukraine, Ukraine as a project, which is anti-imperial in its nature. Uh, it's about decolonizing, right? And it's about democracy and the rule of law. And so that is exactly, that's why he's going after Kyiv and not after, you know, some other parts of Ukraine that are perhaps easier to take and hold. Right, so as territory as such is not as important to him as squashing the idea that has kind of has you know blossomed so close to his border that could potentially threaten him internally, politically speaking, right? Could undermine his own power and the prospect of this kind of you know system that he has established uh, in terms of governing Russia. Yeah, can I, can I just add very quickly? And, and I also think it's important to know that this might have a negative. For, from Russia's perspective, uh, sort of domino effect of forcing other countries like Finland, for example, which for the first time in, in the last 20, 30 years is in favor of actually joining NATO. Uh, and it may make certain regimes across the border. So precisely what Putin wanted to avoid, which was to be surrounded by um, uh, NATO members, is precisely what's going to end up happening unless he can control and take over the whole of Ukraine, which I think is going to be very, very difficult, if not impossible for him. Right. In, in effect, Putin has already lost, even though, you know, we must pay careful attention to the humanitarian situation in Ukraine and the devastation. But he has already lost because he has effectively brought the West together. The EU is stronger in so many different ways. Um, it, it was, I think, already strong, but it has brought member states together in unprecedented ways. And we've seen kind of reversals of policies and barriers to agreement on other things just, uh, you know, disintegrating. And so he's already lost in terms of his fear that, you know, Ukraine would find the EU more attractive or that somehow he could divide up the EU. That's simply not happening. Right. And I think that that comprehensive package of sanctions that the EU acted so quickly on is a is a direct re uh, reflection of that. It has been we are out of time. It has been so interesting and helpful to have you guys on today. I'm really looking forward to continuing getting into the weeds of this conflict with you guys in the coming weeks. We're going to be live every Wednesday at 1030 and we're going to be taking viewer questions again. Please email your questions to Ukraine questions at nbcuni.com. And we will look forward to seeing you next Wednesday. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.